0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell of Back to the Bible Canada. In our final message of this series on 1 Corinthians, Dr. Neufeld will teach us an important lesson about discipleship. So let's learn about life-changing relationships as we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14 to 21.
1: Robert Schmidgall said, we teach what we know, We reproduce what we are. You see, that statement, we learn the difference between an educator and a discipler. An educator teaches, a discipler trains. An educator gives knowledge, a discipler gives wisdom. An educator gives facts, a discipler gives skill. An educator hands out written assignments, a discipler hands out living assignments. An educator confronts us with exams, a discipler confronts us with life, An educator tells us what to read, and a discipler tells us who to watch and who to be like. In this last broadcast on 1 Corinthians, we're going to be discussing life-changing relationships. You know that each one of us have different relationships, relationships that mean different things. For instance, a buddy that you golf with is one kind of relationship. A father whom you emulate, well, that's another kind of relationship. A person you go to church with is one kind of relationship, but a person you pray with That's another kind of relationship. I'm interested in the kind of relationships that are life-transforming. One of the tasks given to all mature believers is to lead someone or some small group of people to know the power of a life-transforming relationship with Jesus. Each one of us must both be trained to recognize the hand of Jesus in everything and to train others to do the same. We will always throughout life be both leaders and followers. So today I want to speak about discipleship, about those life-changing relationships that God wants for all of us. I want to speak about how to be a leader and how to be a follower. Because, you see, you and I will be both leaders and followers all of our lives for the glory of God and for the good of others. Well, let's read the last paragraph of 1 Corinthians 4. I'll start by reading verses 14 to 16. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then be imitators of me. So let's talk about life-changing leadership. P.T. Forsyth gave a great principle of life-changing spiritual leadership. He said you must live with people to know their problems and live with God in order to solve them. Because Paul had lived with the people in Corinth, he knew their problems. They were proud, they were divisive, and they were in love with the wisdom of the world. They emulated their pagan culture rather than the Jesus culture. But because Paul lived with God, he knew exactly what they needed. They needed the mind of Christ, but that was only half the challenge. The other half of the challenge is to know how to teach them. What kind of leadership would be life-changing? Now, note how he begins. The first word that describes the kind of life-changing relationship that Paul had with the Corinthian church is the word admonish. I write to you, he says, to admonish you and not to shame you. I know that the word admonish is an older word, but in today's English word, it means to caution someone or to give them a word of warning. In fact, that's the first task of life-changing relationships. It warns. Paul knew that a Christian life is fraught with all kinds of dangers. For instance, there are heresies, wrong beliefs. It's so important that believers are not confused about truth. Secondly, the battle for faith and the war against unbelief. Thirdly, the tenacious tug of the world, what the older theologians called worldliness. Fourthly, there's the battle against the flesh and the temptations that we're all prone to. Fifthly, there's the struggle against Satan who seeks to undo us. Then there's the reality of hardship, illness, persecution, discouragement. There will be times when you might feel God is far away. All these stand in the way of anyone being who Christ wants them to be. Anyone who would lead others must warn that there are great pitfalls along the pathway of spiritual growth. And for this church, there were the problems of divisions and their love affair with what went for wisdom in the pagan city of Corinth. Now, I want you to notice Paul's tactic. He warns or he admonishes, but he does not shame. There are parents who raise their children with shame, and there are Christian leaders who try to shame people. You know, I find that all that shame does is that it it drives sin underground. But warning, well, warning helps us to identify the dangers that are there. You know, not long ago, I was in a parking lot, and I watched a little boy, about three years old, running as hard as he could away from his mom straight into the parking lot in which there were all sorts of cars. The little boy had just begun his mad dash with no thought whatsoever when his mother went dashing out after him and caught him just as he was about to enter the area where the cars were moving. And what do you think she did? She said, Johnny, take a look at those cars. And then she told him about the dangers she was warning. She didn't say, I'm so ashamed of your behavior today. She said, if you do that, you could be badly hurt, and I love you. That's what Paul was doing with the Corinthians, and that's what every single discipler does. The pathway to the celestial city is fraught with danger. Discipleship warns, and secondly, it loves. I love this line in the second half of verse 14. Paul says, He's not shaming them, but warning them, as my beloved children. Paul could have said, You stupid Corinthians, you're divisive. You're in love with this worldly wisdom. You understand nothing about leadership. I don't even know how you can call yourself Christians. But he doesn't do that. In fact, when he began this book, he began by telling them that he was thankful that in every way they were enriched in all speech and knowledge and that the testimony of Christ was confirmed among them. Yes, he notices what's going well, not just what's going poorly. You know, there comes a point in every discipleship relationship where the discipler is frustrated or even disappointed in the progress of the new believer. But look at what Paul calls the Corinthians, beloved children. That word for beloved comes from the Greek word agapao. It's the kind of love that's given for the undeserving, the very kind of love God has for us. And that's exactly the kind of love Paul had for the church in Corinth. Later on in 2 Corinthians 12, 14 and 15, he expressed that love perfectly. He says, here for the third time, I'm ready to come to you. And I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you, he says. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. See, if you're going to disciple someone, it will cost you something in the end. You know, in a way, it's like raising children. You know, if Kathy and I had known what the costs were to raise children, well, I think we'd have had pause for a moment. We would have wanted to catch our breath. And I don't simply mean financially. You know, I mean emotionally. I mean time-wise. I mean a hundred different ways. But one thing that a child does in your life is that children will take every last selfish inclination that you have and suck that right out of you. You must gladly spend and be spent for their souls. That's your calling. Well, that's what discipleship does. It costs you, it costs to love. So life-changing relationships are worn and they love, and thirdly, they also reproduce. Paul says that he recognizes that the Corinthians have many guides, but not many fathers, and he's their father. The Greek word for guide here can be translated as a tutor. In the ancient world, tutors were home instructors for children. They were usually slaves who were responsible for basic training and moral upbringing of small children. They are people for whom uh, the family would rely for help in raising their children. Paul is saying that's the same in the church. There are all sorts of people who help in so many ways. They teach, they lead, they help, they guide, they organize, they encourage. Well, really, we can talk about all the spiritual gifts that God's people use to serve the Lord and each other. But there has been something special about his relationship with the church in Corinth. He had himself led a number of them to Christ. He had discipled them. He had trained them to use their gifts in the service of Christ. And he had laid out the foundation for this church. Yeah, he felt very personally responsible. And in these ways, he is their father. Now, you and I know that in the normal world, you become a father when you have a baby boy or a little baby girl. And I remember when our first child was born, I was just staring at her. I was holding her in my arms. And I remember saying to myself over and over again, this is my own flesh and blood. This is my own flesh and blood. And I remember thinking, I could lay down my life for this child today. See, it was wonderful. I had become a father, and I loved that. But in the same way, I remember the first time I had opportunity to pray with someone and lead them to Christ. You know, before that, I had prayed that God would give me one day just one such opportunity. In a way I never knew was possible. I felt a greater stake in that person's spiritual future than I could possibly know. Life-changing leadership warns, it loves, it reproduces, it wins people to Christ, it trains people to be full-fledged followers of Jesus. I hope you're getting a perspective of leadership that isn't about just telling people what to do. It's about investing in the lives of people to help them to be what Christ wants them to be. You know, when we come back, we're going to see that life-changing relationships also models and empowers people to be all that Christ wants them to be. But it really is all about investing into a life. It's about giving of ourselves. It's about sacrifice, but it's about joy. It's about all those things. Come back after the break.
0: You know, discipleship is such a key ingredient in our spiritual growth. As Paul is explaining to the church, We all need to have these life-changing relationships, which begs the question, are we actively pursuing the role of being disciples and followers? When we return, Dr. Neufeld explores more of what it means to model godly leadership, as well as what a great follower looks like. Imagine walking the very streets that Jesus walked, or placing your foot into the Sea of Galilee. If experiencing the very places Jesus, Paul, David, and so many others lived and taught is something you've always wanted to do, then make plans to join Back to the Bible Canada for our 2021 Israel Experience. Consider this your personal invitation to join Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and very special musical guests, along with the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team for a trip of a lifetime, April 11th to the 19th, 2021. Experience the sights, sounds, history, and culture of Israel, making the Bible come alive. And for those who'd like to extend their experience, we're also offering a Jordan extension. So to learn more or to register today, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca.
1: Life-changing leadership models the life of Christ. In verse 16, Paul urges the Corinthians to imitate him. It's been said that this verse is the most challenging verse in the entire Bible. Which one of us has the courage to say, if you want to learn to be more like Jesus, just hang around with me and watch me. Then do what you see me doing. That's how you follow Jesus. But lest we think that only Paul can say this, think again. In 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1, Paul sets out the standards for an elder. That's a leader in a church. One thing's clear. Of the 23 characteristics of an elder, only one of them, that is the ability to teach, is given as a job description of an elder. That's what elders do. They're teachers. The other 22 characteristics speak not about what an elder does, but who an elder is. And roughly speaking, we can divide that list of 22 characteristics into four separate categories. The first category speaks about who the elder is in relation to God. For instance, he holds firmly to the truths of the Bible, or he's upright and holy. The second category speaks about who the elder is in relationship to others, both inside and outside of the church. The third category speaks about who the elder is in relationship to himself. He's self-controlled. He's disciplined. And finally, the fourth category speaks about who the elder is in relationship to his family. He must manage his family well and see that his children are believers. And what does that tell you? The Bible expects that leaders will lead by example. It expects all of us to get to the place where we can say, imitate me. I remember hearing the story of a youth pastor. We'll call him Pastor Bob. Bob was a youth pastor who had a special love for street kids, and he had befriended one young man, Kevin, whom he invited to come into his church. Well, Kevin showed up quite nervous because he had never been in a church before, and he really didn't know how to act. He looked around for Pastor Bob, but Pastor Bob was nowhere to be found. And eventually, someone in the meeting went over to Kevin and asked if he knew Jesus. And Kevin said, well, no, I haven't met him, but is he like Pastor Bob? And that's a life-changing leadership. It warns, it loves, it reproduces, it models. And then finally, it also empowers. Let's read verse 17. That's why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. You know, verse 17 really does give us quite an insight into the kind of leadership Paul had. In First Timothy, Paul calls Timothy, my true child in the faith. And in Second Timothy, he calls him, my beloved child. Timothy was Paul's spiritual son. He had accompanied Paul on his second missionary journey, and as such, was being trained by Paul. He probably arrived in Corinth shortly after this letter arrived. You know, in 1 Corinthians 16:17, at the end of the book, Paul writes, "I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence." Well, those three men probably arrived in Corinth with this letter. Now, let me read Acts 19:21 to 22. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now, most likely, since Timothy was in the area, Paul sent him a note telling him to hurry to Corinth. Is Roland going there? Go to a troubled church and remind them of the truths of the faith they had received. So Timothy was charged to do in Corinth what Paul would do if he could have gotten over there right away. And what does that tell all of us? It tells you that Paul had reproduced himself in Timothy. It now didn't matter if it was Paul or Timothy, the Corinthians would get the same message. And that's the final lesson in life-transforming leadership. Leadership is not done until a person being led is empowered to act with the same power and authority as the leader. Leadership always looks to give the ministry away to another generation of leaders. That's what Paul wanted Timothy to understand as he wrote the last letter before his death. You then, my child, be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will also be able to teach others. Now, do you see the progression? Paul, first generation, disciples Timothy, second generation of leader. Timothy then entrusts that to a faithful man, third generation, who will be able to teach others, fourth generation. Paul always thought of who would be left behind him after he was gone, who would carry on. Let's put it another way. The next generation ought to look back at us and have been encouraged to carry on by our faithful witness. But we're not yet done. Paul has been talking about life transforming leadership, but now he turns to life changing followership. There are in this passage four principles of being the kind of follower that will eventually become the right kind of leader. Here's the first of them followership is humble. Verse 18 reads, Some of you are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. See, that was the big problem at Corinth. They were arrogant. Paul has said it before, back in verse 6, he has said they were puffed up in favor of one over the other, and it needs to be said that the greatest hindrance to many people growing in Christ is that they are incapable of being humble followers. But look again at verse 18. It might be that there were those who said, if Timothy comes, what's that to us? In other words, we'll respond to the main guy, but surely not to Timothy. I think that any good leader must also be a follower. That's the first principle. Life-changing followership is humble. It listens more and talks less. Let's read verse 19. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. It seems that there were people in Corinth who could always be counted on to talk. They gossiped. They made judging comments. They compared people with people. They were always expressing their opinions on something. Paul wants them to know he is not impressed by talk at all. I think a mark of a great disciple is that they listen. They're trying to grow. They're trying to learn. They've come to know that there are great traps set up by the enemy of their soul, so they need to be warned. They know that those who lead them love them. They know that they must learn to share their faith. They know that they must learn to model their faith and empower others, and so they listen more and talk less. the third mark of a great followership is that it is infused with kingdom power. Listen to verse 20. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. See, what kind of power does Paul have in mind? Does he mean the kind of power that he speaks about later when he speaks about some of the more spectacular spiritual gifts, like gifts of healing and, and tongues and prophecy? Well, actually, I'm sure that's not what he has in mind here. Because the context of this passage, the kind of power he means is the kind of power that stops one from sinning, the kind of power that makes one a spiritual leader, a leader who transforms the lives of others. Now let's listen to the last verse, verse 21. What do you wish, he asks? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Here's the fourth thing we learn about followership. It's trainable. It needs to be said that some of us only respond to threats. The book of Proverbs says that the fool only responds to the rod. But disciples of Jesus respond to gentleness because it is their desire to be involved in life-changing relationships. That's not to say we feel worthy or capable. You know, I love what Jamie Buckingham once said, All the holy men seem to have gone off and died. There's no one left here now but us sinners to carry on the ministry. Well, that might seem to be the case in Corinth. But if I learned anything from Corinthians in these last four weeks, it's this. I've learned that we really can be transformed by Christ in a pagan world. I've learned that we really can learn a wisdom that comes from on high. I learned that we really can be humble. And I learned that each one of us can be trained to be Christ-like so that we can be transformed in a pagan world and that we, by the power of Christ, can transform the pagan world in which we live. Heavenly Father, thank you for the lessons found in this book. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you teach us wisdom. May we, as your church, be all that you want us to be. In the strong name of Jesus we ask, amen.
0: John, thanks for a great series in 1 Corinthians, but I wanted you to pass on something to the leaders of today. You said leadership always looks to give the ministry away to another generation of leaders. What are those things you feel are so necessary to pass on?
1: Wow, thank you, Ben. Um, there's so much that one can say. I think we would probably say at the outset, make a prayer and the study of the Word central focus of your life. Um, I, I can't think of anything other than... Uh, pouring out the resources of your own heart on those kind of matters because that's how you stand before the congregation. When you stand before the congregation, be a man of God. Uh, Don't simply go through some motions. I think that probably is the most important thing that I can share. And then the other thing is, when you go through hard times, count it all joy to identify with Christ in those things. Um, Don't take yourself too seriously. And remember, in the end of the day, Christ will settle accounts you don't have to. So those are maybe two things I'd like to share.
0: Well, as we wrap up this four-week series, we've indeed learned about so many relevant and important issues in the first four chapters of First Corinthians, issues that apply so readily to our own walk with God, but also about the life of the church in general. I think this closing line sums it up well, that foolish and fallen people can be transformed to represent Christ in a pagan world. So let us be hopeful as we wrestle with these struggles within ourselves and in the body of believers, and remember that this is God's church we're building. Let us not only soak in Paul's teachings, but ask the Spirit to help us to apply them every day. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day.
2: At year's end, we can't help but reflect on the partnership of so many across Canada that make this Bible-teaching ministry possible, particularly the important role our monthly partners play in providing consistent, reliable, foundational support for every resource Back to the Bible Canada has to offer. Recently, Jane wrote these words of encouragement. As monthly partners, my husband and I count it a great privilege to financially support Back to the Bible Canada. It's just a small but important way for us to partner in the gospel. Through listening to Dr. John's podcasts, we are challenged to know the Bible and prioritize our relationship with our Savior. Jane, your commitment to Bible teaching means so much. Perhaps as we look to a new year, others might join with Jane as a partner in the gospel by becoming a monthly partner. All you need to do is call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.